Hello, my name is Melissa Hoffman. I'm a public health associate at the Medical Society of the State of New York, and I'm joined today by Dr. Craig Katz. Dr. Katz is a clinical professor of psychiatry, medical education, system design, and global health at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. Dr. Katz founded and directs Mount Sinai's program in global mental health, an interest that grew out of his experience in organizing and providing psychiatric services to disaster-affected communities since 1998. Through an organization, Dr. Katz also co-founded and led Disaster Psychiatry Outreach. He is co-vice chair of Misney's Committee on Emergency Preparedness and Disaster Terrorism Response, and we will be discussing the psychosocial effects of the novel coronavirus or COVID-19 pandemic that is currently taking place. Welcome, Dr. Katz. My first question is, based on what we know from history, what are some of the common human reactions to infectious outbreaks? Well, we have historical information dating back even to the Black Plague in the mid-1300s, going all the way up to the recent Ebola crisis. So we have some information about different reactions over the years. And in the earlier times, certainly from what we know, there was a greater proneness to mass panic and to shunning and social isolation and mass social disruption. And that probably was born of a couple of things, but probably mostly the lack of any ability of any kind of public health measures, a lack of medical science and public health interventions to actually do something about these things. So really, people were left to their own. We also though know from even more recent events that even when you have a solid government, uh, even a democracy, even a, an emerging health system, a public health system, you can still have problems. And so when we look at the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, which killed 50 million people worldwide, it was truly devastating. What's felt to be the case is that the government at the time, the U.S. government and local governments, really stayed mum about it. They didn't talk about it. They're they even close, I think, from President Wilson at the time that it was better not to talk about it. And it felt to be the case, not talking about it, not being, as we say, transparent about the situation, very much fomented the same kind of things we saw back during the Black Plague, except at a time where we certainly had more options at our disposal. And we know then from even more recent events, for example, SARS, back in 2003. There's probably no way to completely eliminate or take panic, but we also know that things like social support, which is a very broad topic, but people feeling supported through different means definitely mitigates the amount of panic and anxiety that people have. And we also know that even after an event, there's actually a need for communities to so-called heal, right? Communities that after an infectious threat have separated, protected themselves, sheltered in place, avoided one another, and perhaps even had distrust of one another because other people are potentially infectious, that after the Ebola crisis in Liberia, studies were done, interventions were done where they actually had healing groups and they brought communities together in groups to talk about what they went through, to talk about their current fears. And there's evidence and it makes sense. This may be the sort of thing that you don't necessarily need to study to prove that having that kind of level of social support helped communities to heal after the event as well. And my next question, could you please describe some factors that can influence how people react? Well, there are personal factors that can influence how people react, and then there are the circumstantial factors that can affect how people react. So individual factors 
probably the biggest ones are you know, really how people were doing before the event. In other words, was there any kind of disruption in their life? Did they suffer any recent losses in their personal life? Are they grieving? So basically, if people were having problems in their life before, not surprisingly, they're going to probably have bigger problems once an event like this happens. And that's across the board for all sorts of disasters of any sort. In terms of the event itself, aspects about it, again, I think having information from trusted sources, whether it's public health officials or other government officials, local, state, federal, whatever governmental organization is, makes a huge difference having information. And so some of the information, of course, may be scary and people may not want to necessarily hear it all. But hearing it and knowing what the facts are and hearing it from a trusted source goes a long way for reducing people's fears. Thank you, Dr. Katz. Could you tell us how can historical lessons be applied within medical practices during the current COVID-19 outbreak? I think medical practitioners can do a number of things. To the extent that medical practitioners have a way of communicating with their patients, let's say through email or some other kind of mass communication purposes. Because in this particular event, we're getting flooded by information from different sources, many trusted sources like the CDC or the World Health Organization, but information is coming from lots of different sources and is coming quickly. I think to the extent that medical practitioners can actually distill that information and as information they disseminate electronically or even have handouts or up-to-date information right there in their office to the extent that people are coming into their office, I think would be a huge, huge benefit. So right, the patients trust them, the patients know them, and they are probably counting on them to tell them what they need to do. And so I think that is a critical role that medical practitioners can play. And this lends itself to that previous answer. How best should physicians communicate with adult patients about COVID-19 concerns, and how should they communicate with children? Well, in some sense, the answer to both is with the facts. I think with adults, I think that that's pretty clear, as we were just saying. I think up-to-date information goes a long way. I think children, you know, people always have the question, how much should I tell them? How much should I protect or shield them from? And the truth of the matter is kids are getting tons of information to the extent that they have internet access. They're getting lots of information. They have smartphones. They're chatting with their friends. They're hearing all sorts of rumors. So kids get a lot of information anyway. And it's actually really important to do, I'd say, probably two things with kids. One is to be frank with them. Even if they didn't have internet access, even if we didn't have these flood of information that we have these days, fun is to be direct with them and not hide information from them. Kids know when things are going on. Kids have a sense when their caretakers are anxious or upset. And if you don't explain to them what's going on, their imagination is probably going to take over. And kids have a rich imagination and they may well be imagining things that are perhaps far worse than the situation or at least quite inaccurate and need to be dispelled. So I think that's very important. I think the other way to approach it with kids these days, and again, depends upon the age and their access to outside information, but is to ask them what they know and then discuss with them to the extent that you are informed to explain to them what, try to make sure what they have is accurate or fill in any blanks that they're missing. My next question is, what are the psychological concerns surrounding quarantine and isolation? Well, there's definitely a a literature and there's experience about the effects of quarantine on people. So there are really two ways to look at that. There's 
during quarantine and isolation and there's post-quarantine, post-isolation. During quarantine or isolation, quarantine is if you aren't sick, trying to prevent you from getting sick. Isolation is if you are sick and allowing you to get over it so you're no longer infectious, but I'll just call it quarantine collectively. Being in quarantine, the factors that are there are often boredom. There is, of course, the whole point to being socially distanced like that, and that can have a profound effect on people, even if they know it's for the public's good and perhaps for their good, particularly people that might be have struggled with loneliness and isolation before. It really does compound it for many people. So there's perhaps it's obvious, but the impact of being socially disconnected. Now, of course, internet, etc., should help with all that, but that's not always the same, but it's definitely, we hope these days, improves it. There's also the sense of feeling stigmatized. What it's like to be quarantined and feel like you're different, there's something wrong with you. And so there's that element of feeling like an outcast, basically. And then post-quarantine, there's probably two main issues. One is the socioeconomic impact, right? And we hear about this in the news now, but you know what happens to people, their income? and the stress that that imposes on their, their loss of income if they were not able to do the kind of work they normally do remotely, which is the case for many people, especially people in, in lower socioeconomic classes who more likely need to be physically present to do the kind of work that they normally do. So there's that stress. Then there is the stigma of having come out of isolation or quarantine and how people greet or see you. My final question, and it's a three-part question, and you sort of touched on that in the previous answer, what are some of the residual effects of infectious outbreaks? How long can they be expected to last? And how prevalent across the population are they? Well, firstly, of course, for infectious outbreaks or really any catastrophic event, initially there's a whole range of anxiety responses, distress responses that can be psychological, behavioral, you know, people think, how people feel, many of which may be normal and maybe even adaptive to be very anxious early on. In fact, you kind of count on anxiety early on to kind of motivate you, fear to do the things that you need to do. For example, change your way of life as we're doing right now with COVID-19. So you kind of need that anxiety early on. But what happens over time is if that anxiety doesn't die down as the situation hopefully stabilizes, it can pose a problem. And then you have anxiety morphing into things like, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder, where someone is acting like the threat is happening when it isn't. That's going to be a little challenging now because we don't know the length of the current threat, but that is basically what PTSD is, a stress reaction, a fight-or-flight reaction that doesn't go away when the threat doesn't go away. We could also, in the long term, worry about a major depression. That's a very common response to any long-term problematic response to any disastrous event. And we also have to actually be thinking about alcohol use problems. Disasters, large-scale events like this don't, from what we know, cause people to develop drinking problems, but they will cause recurrences or worsening of existing problems. And that's a very big issue, of course, too. And in this, in terms of the general anxiety, we should just sort of talk about that there is, of course, to go back to what I was saying earlier, a rational level of anxiety, and then there's an irrational level of anxiety. And actually, what we generally have seen from past events to get back to the historical perspective is that anxiety early on in an event is more likely to be more irrational, more dysfunctional, doing things that don't make sense during SARS, hoarding vinegar, and that was thought to be something that was going to be protective. What generally appears to be the case, right, because people are ultimately quite rational and social beings, 
is that once people kind of get their bearings a little bit, sort of the more dysfunctional anxiety gives way to more functional anxiety and gives way to our more normal and inherent social impulses and desire actually to help one another and be connected. Those things do generally fall into place over time. So that's a good long-term effect. And so that ultimately, maybe an event like this, while it might cause some social disconnectedness initially, whether that's by virtue of government policy or not, people avoiding one another, et cetera, over time, people do become more cohesive, generally speaking. And so we, I think, can count on human nature to ultimately serve us well. Dr. Katz, thank you so much for all of that very useful and timely and relevant information. We encourage everyone to please go to the MISNI website and keep posted on all of the COVID-19 updates that are there and listen to MISNI's other podcasts about the current situation.